0: Again, a brief three-part series on the book of Habakkuk. You know, that's one of the minor prophets and one of the shorter minor prophets, only three chapters in that book, so it's the type of book that's hard to find in your Bible if you're looking for it. Uh, but I've entitled uh, this series the same title as the sermon has today, God is doing a work in these days. And so, I'll read for us Habakkuk chapter one, verses one through eleven. And you know there are two versions of the ESV out there. I have the uh, Reformation Study Bible. This is the ESV. You may see a word or two different because our folks in the church office they copy and paste from sites of ESV, so. It's the same text, but uh, it was pointed out to me after the first service that there's a word or two different. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And then this is the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. whose own might is their God. It was William Shakespeare who once wrote, No legacy is so rich as honesty. And it was God who wrote, You shall not against your neighbor. In other words, God expects honesty out of you and me as we deal with one another, and he also expects honesty out of us when we deal with him. When David wrote Psalm 51, that great prayer of confession after his sin with Bathsheba, he said, behold, you desire truth in the inward being. God wants us to be true in our hearts. And He wants that because He Himself is truth. You know, as Jesus who told His disciples in John 14, 6, I am the way and I am the what? The truth and the life. And that's why God tells us through David in Psalm 32 that blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, truth really can set us free in more than one way. Now here at the beginning of this sermon, I'm talking about truth and honesty because we can see that these words from Habakkuk to God in the first part of our text are very honest. And notice that Habakkuk's words are given to him from God in the form of an oracle, or a pronouncement, if you will, by God. As one commentator put it, this setting implies that even this questioning from Habakkuk is inspired by God's Spirit. And this means that this form of Scripture, whether we want to call it questioning or or lamentations, a form of lament or whatever term we want to use, are God's gift to you and me. I mean, think about how we're told that fully one-third of the psalms are songs or prayers of lament. It's uh, this way in which God gives us this gift to verbalize all of the different feelings that we have in a scriptural way back to Him. Whether we're angry or whether we're discouraged or whether we're depressed or whatever it happens to be. A good example is David's psalm 13, a typical psalm of lament. When he begins that psalm, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Or or take this text before us today as a good example. Habakkuk's words here. Or Jesus Himself on the cross crying out, To God the Father, through the words of the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Repeatedly we have these examples of people being brutally honest with God all through the Scriptures. And the point I'm wanting to make here is that you and I can use words of lament like these to be very honest with God without incurring guilt whether we're talking Habakkuk or the psalmist or Jesus Himself using the words of Psalm 22, they did not hesitate to bring their complaints to God and to directly ask whatever questions they had. They may not have received the answer that they were looking for, but they were still able to bring those requests to God in an upright and faithful way. But I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying you can just rail at God any way you like. Because as one commentator put it, protest and lament can be faithful on the one hand, or it can be unfaithful. And you're probably wondering, what's the difference? Well, a faithful is like the psalmist. Is like Jesus on the cross. It uh, it speaks to God directly. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whereas the unfaithful lament is more impersonal, and even maybe judges God for what He's doing. I'm sure you've heard someone say at some point. It's not directly approaching God. That's talking about Him to someone else. And that's the basic difference between a faithful lament and an unfaithful lament that really is a complaint when we think about it. And the reason, of course, I'm spending so much time on this is because we've just been through a horrific week and a half as a congregation, and we need constructive and honest ways to reach out to God and to tell Him what's on our hearts. And passages like this one before us in Habakkuk 1, passages like we find in the Psalms can show us how to do that. When I put this preaching plan together several months ago, I didn't know that this text would come just four days after the memorial service for our wonderful friends who were taken from us in such a tragic way. But God did. And you know, those are two of the most important words you'll ever find in Scripture. But God. If you've got a concordance, you look it up sometime. You look up how many times that phrase is in Scripture. It's kind of like what we see in Ephesians 2, where we're told that we're dead in our sins, but just a few verses later, Paul says, but God, who's rich in mercy, has done thus and so for us. We see that over and over again in Scripture. And there are several ways we could deal with this text today. But instead of peeing on us as individuals and going through it line by line, or instead of keying on it with us as a nation in mind, because really that's the original context, you know, Habakkuk is speaking to the entire nation of Israel, telling them about the judgment that's about to come upon them because of their faithless living. But instead of doing that to simply try to look at the big picture. And even though we're looking at the big picture, this text speaks to us in the midst of where we are as a church family after such a terrific event. And it speaks to us as American citizens living in a nation that has had a vast and rapid And I know that we're saddened and grieved by both of those. What's happened to us as a congregation in the past week and a half, and what has happened to us as a nation over the past couple of generations. But we need to keep before us the truths that Habakkuk expresses all through this short book as we go through this brief three-part series Uh, Today and the next two Lord's Days to come, entitled God is Doing the Work in These Days. You know, shortly after World War II was over, uh, the great Welsh uh, preacher, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd Jones, who was uh, in London, I believe, at the time, preached a series of sermons on Habakkuk in response to all the angst that the war and its aftermath had left behind. And they were later published in a little book called From Fear to Faith, a little book I've had in my own library for some time. I I can't remember how I got it or where it came from because it's about older than I am. Uh, But anyway, um, and it has become a kind of classic study on the book of Habakkuk. Uh, And people like, For example, James Montgomery Boyce, whom you hear me and John quote from, uh, from time to time, uh, quote Lloyd-Jones in their own commentaries, and I'm telling you all this to make the point that the four-point outline you're going to hear today in this uh, sermon is found in this book, just like it's found in that of James Montgomery Boyce, just like it's found in so many others. And the first thing we need to notice is that history is under God's control. Your history as well as the world's history. God is so sovereign over all of it. And we can see this very clearly in verse 6 of our text where God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. You know, I'm going to take these, these Babylonians and I'm going to judge and chastise Israel for their faithlessness. He's going to take a whole nation and bring them from their part of the world over to defeat Israel so that they might learn something from them. And we can see this truth of how God is sovereign over history at other places in Scripture. If you want another Old Testament example, think of 2 Chronicles 36 where God's historian tells us in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that He made a proclamation throughout His kingdom. Thus says Cyrus, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and He's charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem. Now, that edict went out through his kingdom. And Cyrus was a pagan king. But God is going to use him in the history of that nation of Persia. In the New Testament, we can see this truth in Galatians 4.4. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, when enough of history had passed, God sent forth Jesus into the world at that proper time. And that verse shows us that not only is history under God's control, but that He also has a divine power Plan for His creation in history. That Galatians verse is sometimes translated when the fullness of time had come. This was the time set by God the Father in His plan of redemption for those who were lost. The time that Paul calls the end of the ages in 1 Corinthians 10. We can see that God has a divine plan all through the prophets and in His history of the early church that Luke has written for us that we refer to as the book of Acts. In our first reading, found in Acts 13, Paul is talking to a congregation of people in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. And he says, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. And then right at the end of that sermon, Paul quotes verse 5 of our text here in Habakkuk 1. Saying, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. Paul wants that conversation to see God's divine plan for history in Jesus Christ and how they need to believe when they hear it. And you and I need to do the same thing. We need to hear and believe God's divine plan in Christ. But not only does God have a divine plan for history, but He also has a divine timetable to go along with that plan. It was when the fullness of time had come that He sent Jesus into the world. And here in our text this morning, we see God say, I'm doing a work when? A work in your days. God brings His plan to fruition in His own time and His own way. And in that Antioch sermon, Paul says the work that God is doing in these last days is ultimately pouring out His love upon the world in Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. And then we know ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we need to understand that Habakkuk was talking to everyone for when he says, I was doing a work in your days that you would not believe He's a southern prophet and he was saying that y'all would not believe. It's plural. You there. He's talking to everybody. You wouldn't believe it, he said. Even if someone tells you. You know, Paul went from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, telling people, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And over and over again, he saw that people would not believe. And they chase him out of the city. Sometimes stoning him. Sometimes whipping him. Running him off to the next place. And we see the same thing in our day and time. Churches should be packed with people praising God for what He's done for them in Jesus Christ. How He sent His own Son into this world to live a perfect life and sacrifice His life on the cross for our sins, not for anything that He'd done, so that He pays the debt we could never pay for ourselves. That's what Jesus has done for us. And churches should just be full of people praising God for that. And yet they don't believe. As one commentator put it, God is most interested in making sure we have a right relationship with Him. And if that relationship needs restoring, God is committed to those goals, even if it means changing completely our entire way of life as He did with Israel. You know, we Americans had better sit up and take notice of what happened to Israel. The same fate could await us if we continue to stray so far from God's Word and God's will. And then finally, we can see that history is connected to or intertwined with God's kingdom. We don't see this mentioned directly in our text so much as we see it in how the text comes to us from a person speaking for God to His kingdom, that is, to His people. As Lloyd-Jones puts it in his little book, the story of other nations mentioned in the Old Testament is relevant only as it bears upon the destiny of Israel. And ultimately, he says, history today right now, in the 21st century, is relevant only as it bears upon the history of the Christian church. Now think about that a moment. We have to remember that world history, since the time of Jesus Christ, since His incarnation, since His life, since His death, since His resurrection, since His ascension, since His gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, has all been about the church. Because Jesus said, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As history continues, the church continues to be built. The purposes of God continue to be accomplished. And even though Israel didn't like being carried off into captivity by the Babylonians, God continued to work everything for good for His people, even in the midst of the exile, because He knew that He would one day bring them back again to the promised land through a nation of His own choosing, which happened to be Cyrus and the Persians whatever happens to the church today throughout the world, but especially here in America if we're thinking about our own context where we're beginning to see persecution against the church in America like we've never seen before. God will continue to work good for His people wherever they're found, even in the midst of intense suffering, persecution, and grief because God is faithful And he can't be anything else. And we know that's true because we find it right in the Bible. As Paul tells Timothy in his second letter, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Now, scholars believe Paul's quoting him with those words and if we are faithless, God will remain faithful. And I hope you know that same truth. That even in the midst of this terrible time we've just endured as a congregation and a community, that God is faithful and cannot be anything else. And since... Paul quoted a hymn, I want to quote a song to you in closing that's on Christian radio right now. You know, Ada listened to Christian radio all the time. She probably knew the words to this song. It's entitled, The Truth I'm Standing On. It's sung by a young lady by the name of Leanna Crawford. And in her second stanza, she sings, Good. I believe you're still good. I will not lose this hope that the God who parts the sea promises He's going to make a way for me. And then she sings the chorus. This is the truth I'm standing on even when all my strength is gone. You are faithful forever and I know you'll never let me fall. Right now, I'm choosing to believe someday soon I'll look back to see all the pain had a purpose. Your plan was perfect all along. This is the truth I'm standing on. Now, I don't know whether you think that sounds like a deep song or not, but to me it sounds a lot like the words of the prophet Habakkuk right at the end of this very book the end of the third chapter where he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of salvation because God the Lord is my strength. That's the truth you and I can stand